welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So this week is Parashat B'Shalach. Um, it's uh, the Torah portion in which the Song of the Sea is, is read. Uh, and uh, correspondingly, it's the Haftarah uh, in which Devorah's song, her victory song, is, is read. So it's a Shabbat Shirai, a Shabbat of, of poetry, a Shabbat of triumphant songs. Uh, and it gives us an opportunity uh, to speak a little bit about Devorah, who's really a really unique figure in Tanakh. And uh, she's become, I think, also a really important um, yeah, role model and sort of, I guess, character in halakhic literature as well. So I want to make sure we talk about Devorah as a, you know, a person you know, in, in Sefer Shoftim, in Tanakh, and also as, a, as an example, as a precedent in, in halakhic literature. Right. So the Book of Shoftim describes Devorah as a prophetess and that she was a leader in Israel. And she sat under the famous Tomer Devorah, the palm tree of Devorah. And the people like Bnei Israel would come for judgment to her. Uh, they'd come and, and she would sit in judgment. Um, but she also plays a key role, I think, in the battle because she it has this kind of shared leadership with Barak ben Avinoam, who's the military commander. Um, but she's the one who calls it to him and says, you know, it's kind of time to, it's time to call your troops up and go to war uh, with the Plishtim, right? Go do that now. And Barak says to her, only if you come with me. <laughs> and she says, sure. But you should know then that it's not going to be only by your hand that we will win this victory. It's going to be in the hands of a woman who we find out later uh, is Yael, um, possibly also Devorah, I guess, in joining this leadership. But it's Yael, right? Yael, the one who, who um, ultimately uh, brings down the mighty Sisra, the, the captain of the Philistine army. Is the implication, implication that Barak should have been willing to fight without her? or I don't know. I think there's a lot of this push and pull with Devorah, and especially in declaring her might and leadership, and and in the tone of her song, of right, like you, you couldn't have done this without me, um, right? We wouldn't have done this until De- right until Devorah rose up, a leader in Israel. You know, like mm-hmm. she has this very triumphant tone of you couldn't have done it without me as the leader, and with also without. And it's interesting in this in this verse of her or when she summons Barak to say you're not going to be able to do this without another woman, right? Don't you can't do this alone especially as you're telling me, right? You won't go without me. <laughs> yeah, so, so it, it's not necessarily that he's being punished for relying on her. It could just be... Oh, she, I don't think it's a punishment. Yeah. It's her continuing, like, sort of, she's proud of herself and of yeah. other women that they're able to um, bring about this victory that Barack couldn't do on his yeah. own. Yeah, he says, if you go with me, I'll go. And if not, I won't go. He kind of knows that the, like, she has, has strength in her leadership that he needs and she mm-hmm. says, "Okay, very well, I'll go." <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting model of, of shared leadership in a way. Uh, say more. What, what's the shared leadership? I, I mean, if he's saying I can't do it without you, he's stating explicitly, right? I'm not. I'm yes, I'm the the military captain, but I'm not going to go. Like, like what's he bringing to the table? What's let's, what's shared about this leadership? Well, he's he the captain. He is okay. commanding the army, right? He, not, I don't think she has that military uh, experience, but. Um, it's interesting that he's saying, well, I need you as backup. I need you as the person who's, go- who's going to be my support. Um, and she kind of like calls the shots also, right? She says to him, this is the day that you need to go, right? This is, 
uh, this is when you're going to, God's going to deliver Sisera into your hands. God will be with you. He's, she's kind of his spiritual reassurance and um, backbone there. Yeah. I don't know. And then yeah, he yeah. commands the army, right? Like, she's not doing that. But um, Right, right, right. He's actually doing the fighting, and he has the soldiers who are under his command. But she's telling him where to go, and she's giving him the confidence mm-hmm. that he's going to be victorious, that he'll be successful, that, that God is on his side and will bring about yeah. a victory. It's kind of reminding me of, like, the Ark having to go out into battle with the, with the people, right? You kind of oh, need your spiritual presence with you on the battlefield to know it's not just a military endeavor. It's also, right, you go with God, right? And this is about conquering the land and Fascinating. you go with God. So in Halakhic literature, she's also a character, right? She's a precedent. She becomes a, <laughs> you know, she was a person and then she became a precedent. Uh, for the, for, we saw Tosva, we saw the Rashba, um, who <laughs> kind of use her as an example to work through the question of women sitting as judges on courts, which uh, based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, uh, women should not sit on, don't sit on Batei as judges. And yet it seems explicitly black and white that she, she was a judge. She sat under that tree and she was Shaftat Yisrael. It sounds, it sounds like she was, you know, adjudicating cases that people brought before her. Uh, and we saw a few answers in, in the, we showed them about why that was okay. None, despite, you know, working within the assumption uh, within, or within the frame of reference that, Women aren't judges. How was Devara a judge? And we saw a few answers. Right. So one main answer is to say that she wasn't actually judging. This is the language of the Rashba. The Rashba says, she, mamish, right? she wasn't actually judging. She was a leader. Um, and there's still an issue with this in this, in this understanding. Uh, he continues and says, but even though it says in the Sifri, in the Midrash Halacha, Somtasim Alecha Melech, right? You're supposed to appoint a king specifically and not a queen. There they didn't appoint her. The problem would be official appointment. But since they were kind of just following her leadership, her advice, uh, and her guidance, that's, that's okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know, it's, she, I see that as saying what she was doing was no more problematic than the whole entire period of the Shoftim where we didn't oh, have a king and we just had these Shoftim, mm. these chieftains, you know, who <laughs> like controlled uh, little pieces of territory and small armies and, and, you know, did what they did for a few years, right? And before someone else takes their place on the stage. So she wasn't, when it says that she was Shofet, you know, it wasn't that she was, she was like sitting on a court. She was just being a Shofet, like all the other Shoftim and Safer Shoftim, <laughs> uh, no more, no less. And, you know, that, that's, that, that's my read of, of that, that language in uh in, in the Rosh, but I don't know. That's what evokes. Well, then me. he brings up and says, right, even though it says in the Sifri that it's supposed to be a king and not a queen, uh, right? So that I don't know if it's drawing a parallel to to having a real position of power, um, and then right, he kind of waters true. it down and says it wasn't really right. They didn't appoint her as a leader, and, and it's interesting, right? And uh, immediately afterwards, in his second answer, right, his first well, answer let me just was because maybe that's also because it's Som Tasim, right? Som Tasim It's the Appointment within within the, within the Sifrei, right? It's the appointment that's significant, yeah. right? So she wasn't appointed. She just she just she kind of without you know an unofficial way in a you know grassroots kind of way was able to accumulate power and influence. It can't well it can't be because his first answer is they didn't appoint her. She was they were just kind of following her lead, yeah. and the, right. but that's in contrast to his second answer where they say they accepted her as a, as a leader, right? They actually did uh, say, you're going to be the guide. 
But I don't think that's. Um, I don't think no. I don't think. I don't think that's. You don't a, think that's, don't think the that's the contrast. No, because that's. I think that answer is saying that she can be a judge, even though women as a category are invalid to be judges. You can appoint anyone who's invalid to be a judge if, if all the litigants agree. So it's not. She, so in other that's words, not a minoy. That's not an appointment. You're saying. And yeah, exactly. It, it's a. It's a. Yeah. If, if the if the litigants want somebody who's a otherwise invalid judge to be their judge, then that person can be their judge. If the litigant, if both litigants agree. Then why not? So if you have someone like Tavora who's a prophet, you know, is sitting under her tree, so why not? Why, why wouldn't you have her adjudicate? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like an appointment to me. I think appointment is like you. You have your. You're the court for the city. Right. You're the is judge that, for the right. city. Right. You're. You're allowed to be. You're allowed to choose and and to to say I'm going to accept the authority of this person, even though under the broader rules, the technical rules, they would be. Um, they wouldn't be eligible. Right, but I'm going to, to waive that. A relative or whatever, mm-hmm. right? just like a relative can't be a judge, but if they agree that this person can be a good impartial judge and the litigants can. So that, that to me, that's like really taking it in the direction of like, no judge, mm-hmm. like sitting on a court, hearing cases, litigants come forward, and as long as litigants agree that they want this person. So it happened. She, right. A lot of litigants wanted her to be their judge, and so they went to her, you know, so. And that would mean that, right, in, in certain cases, right, a woman could take on this position of power so long as the people who are accept, like uh, taking on that authority agree to it, right? They say, yes, we want this. Yes, yes, I think so. I think so. And then and then um, the other stuff we saw in Toast Vote, the, I thought this sort of intriguing idea that she wasn't the judge. She just told everyone what the law was, right? That's what, that was the <laughs> other, right? She's the one who determined the law. She just, you know, she's the, she was a scholar. She was the, you know, like the, the Gadol Hador, the one who was like really the most authoritative, creative, um, wisest, most knowledgeable Torah scholar, and so she told everyone what the law was, and then there was somebody else who was, you know, who, who read her books, as it were, right? They read her Chidushi, her Chidushi Torah, and they're the ones who were actually sitting on the court and were applying her Torah knowledge, you know, in actual practical cases, which I thought was a sort of more intriguing model as well. It's like halachic advisor, right? Like, if they had a question, they'd go, ba- they'd go back to her, and they'd say, okay, right. what do yeah, you think about yeah. this, right? The consultant yeah. and yeah. teacher. Yeah, but like, but but more so, it's extra, extra consultant is the one who like is like maybe has like narrow technical knowledge, and the judges you know the law best. She knew the law best better than anyone else in her generation, mm. maybe right, or you know, in in her area, she was the one who knew the law best, and so she was the most authentic source for Torah knowledge, I think, and that's that, that's that's what I see in that that toast vote. So, so yeah. she wasn't sitting on the beit right? That was something that that men did, but she was the one who was like teaching everybody what the halacha was, and uh, sort of was determining what it was. I don't know, but the pasuk calls her a shafetet, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why, to me, I see there's like a real, there's a bit of a dichotomy between Devorah, like the character in Sefer Shoftim, and Devorah, the halachic precedent, as the Rishonim are trying to figure out, you know, what's a mod, right, like who's a judge, right. and who, right, right. So, so that, yeah. So there, there might be a, there might be a divide there. So this Wednesday, you are starting a new two-week series on forgiveness in the Talmud. So I'm excited for that to launch. Can you share a little bit about what you're going to be looking at and, and what sources and who should come to that? You know, what type of person <laughs> should come to, to that to the class? Uh, I'll be teaching on Nagarita, uh, um, which combines halachic uh, statements and teachings about forgiveness and the obligation to ask and also to grant forgiveness. Um, and it weaves it with stories about how this is actually put into practice when, when students wrong teachers or friends wronged each other. Uh, how did they go about the um, reconciling and, uh, and actually fulfilling kind of the, the technical requirements of what it means to forgive in halacha? I find it uh, intriguing that there's actually 
a requirement to begin with, right? It seems like such a personal, interpersonal matter um, of what does it mean to be feel wronged, to feel slighted, to be hurt, and how to find uh, room for reconciliation. And yet the halacha has has procedures of what you're supposed to do. Um, so the Rambam actually uh, lays out some of the things that you're supposed to do, uh, and it comes in the context of, of course, Yom Kippur, right? And, and the, the mission teaches that the Day of Atonement, right, the Yom Kippur doesn't atone for sins between uh, people, right? Uh, because uh, transgressions between a person and their friend need to actually be solved in a relational way. Um, so if you injure them or if you curse them or if you uh, steal from them, um, you're not going to get absolution from Yom Kippur. Rather, you have to have uh, restitution if you actually took something or you have to ask for forgiveness. Uh, and uh, there's this obligation. So if you um, offended your neighbor, says the Rambam, um, you're obligated to appease them and to implore to be forgiven by them. That's what the Rambam teaches. And so, but there, it's, it's two-sided, right? If so if you're, you're obligated to go and try three times in most situations, um, if it's between you and your teacher, you're supposed to go uh, as many times as is necessary. Um, and if your neighbor, if your friend refuses to forgive you, right? So there's this other obligation, right? If you're making an effort and you're so showing real remorse and, and, and you're trying to, to appease your friend, then you bring you bring uh, an increasing amount of people. So first, like three people as serving as kind of like an impromptu bait dean uh, to witness the fact that you're trying to go through this process of forgiveness and the other side isn't, isn't giving. Um, right. And, and it's kind of, but it's on the other hand, right. So it's, it's witnessing the fact that, that you're doing all this and um, you're going through the whole process of actually trying to make amends. But on the other hand, it's also saying to, um, it's also embarrassing the person, I suppose, right? The person who's asking for forgiveness and kind of replicating this experience, right? It's putting you in the shoes of your friend when you wrong them. When you wrong someone, when you slight them, when you embarrass them, uh, it hurts, right? And you can feel, they feel embarrassed and they carry this emotional toll from it. And so the process of forgiveness for the person who did the wronging also kind of carries that replication of the hurt kind of so that the person who wronged you can feel a little bit of that too, right? That you have to do it in front of three people and say, yeah, I did something, something bad, something not great that made someone feel not good. This sounds kind of heavy. Why, why, <laughs> why, why do I want to, you know, come to a class about, about people wronging me and I wronged them? It's so heavy, you know. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Um, why, does this, why does this intrigue me? Generally, I teach this class uh, in, the, in the lead up to Yom Kippur when people are kind of in the mood to, to think about these things. But I think in general, especially as we've kind of, like in, in light of COVID, we've kind of lost touch of like the in-person uh, give and take, right? And different, uh, different niceties that we used to have or kind of reading social cues. And I think we're all a little bit off our game in that sense. Uh, and what this sugya, what this sugya emphasizes for me is that obligation to kind of meet your friend face to face when you don't understand them or when something has gone wrong between the two of you, right? That you kind of have to see each other and meet each other and try to understand the other person's experience to empathize and to, um, to take on their perspective uh, in this process. And I think that's something that, uh, that we all kind of need a little, a little uh, reassurance with or support with uh, in our current <laughs> state. Um, with all the separation, with the isolation, there's a lot of empathy that, that is needed. Um, 
actually the, the term that the Gemara uses uh, to appease is the mefak adata, to make the other person, the person you wronged perhaps, to go out of their own perspective. It literally means to go out of your mind, right? To forgive might be to, yeah, that's the kitschy thing that I do, right? So it literally means to go out of your mind, uh, and, or, and that's what forgiveness can be, right? It's saying, like, the hurt is there, right? The wrong happened. It's acknowledging it and validating it, but you have, you're, you're, you're called upon by the halacha to forgive, um, so we're kind of called upon in this process in halacha to take on each other's perspective. And I, I think that's crucial to, to, to us always, and perhaps now as we're, we're kind of missing the element of human interaction a lot. Um, yeah. Ooh, okay. That, that, that sounds <laughs> right. Okay. I, uh, you think it's uh, heavy. You think it's too heavy. It's, okay, it's here's, heavy, the, here's the fun part. Here's the yeah. fun part. There are all sorts of really interesting stories about people asking for forgiveness. That is true. They're great stories. Um, <laughs> They're great stories. And, that. and that'll true. be fun, right? So the right, you just heard the take home, but like, there's fun stuff like the the, it's like like the reen. You know that scene in um, in the Megillah where where Haman's wife empties out or, or <laughs> empties out the trash on his head. Yes, the, I think that's in Masechet Megillah, yeah. not in the Megillah. Itself. Yeah, in Masechet Megillah. There you go. Yes, right. Yes. So that right. So there's like a there's a reminiscent scene here where where someone takes mm. out the trash and it ends up on someone's head and they're like, oh, Mashbot Yari Mevio. And right, I think it's like, like they're taking these ver- like these all these interesting plays on what's my place in life? Like, when, when am I the center of the universe? When am I the center of, fo- of the focus? And when can I say actually the world's bigger than me? My friend yes, that's is right. doing that's is right. doing a lot. Right, like. I, I deserve to be lowered in this moment. And you know, like everyone has their time and there's, there's ebb and flow to life. And I don't know, I think it's uh, these really interesting stories that connect us to the rabbis a long time ago who went through these processes. Yeah, that's right. The stories are great. The stories of forgiveness in the Talmud are amazing. Those are amazing stories. Those are like really, f- they're, they're fun stories. And there's one about a butcher. Very, very it's really interesting, but also kind of violent. Compelling <laughs> stories. Those are great, great stories. Yes, these are great stories. Absolutely. And... And yeah, and we're, we're learning, I guess, in, in sort of learning about these practices where we're like re-engaging in what it means to be part of a society, to live with other people, and they offend you, you offend them, and we gotta, we gotta figure out ways to, to get over that. So, okay, that, that seems like good tools for living. All right. I think it's always relevant. I'm sorry if you, if you thought it was a little too heavy. Sometimes I, I, never said too, heavy. I never said too heavy. I just said heavy. I just said heavy. Oh, uh, okay. Okay? Okay. Right. <laughs> Being very precise. Um, awesome. All right. Awesome. Okay. Uh, the shear is for everyone. Please come learn. It'll be, we'll learn the text in translation. Uh, I think it'll, it'll be fruitful uh, fodder for, for thought, for discussion. Great, 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 great. So, so um, it'll be on Zoom this Wednesday and the following Wednesday, and it'll be recorded on YouTube if you, you know, don't get to participate. I mean, it's really nice to participate live. I think it adds a lot of energy for the teacher to have people participating live and asking <laughs> questions and engaged and nodding along it's on true. Zoom. is like really, really helpful for teachers, but then it's, it's on YouTube, so you can watch it later if you if that, that timing works out better for you. Um, also true. Since we've uh, closed, uh, you know, we've sort of uh, put a ticket on us a couple weeks of pause for Shalashidas and other indoor eating at the shul, we've been learning Torah between Mimcha and Marav for now two weeks. Of, I've, I've been reading through with a group of people in the shul, a uh, passage from Hare Kedem, which is a really fun three-volume sefer of uh, Rav Soloveitchik's uh, Chidushe Torah, his ideas, his, uh, his like, insights and creative uh, frameworks and understandings of various lechic topics, as written up by one of his students, Rabbi Shurin, who sat in his class for 10 years and then has been publishing these books. So we looked at the interaction of Pikulach Nefesh and Shabbat, the restrictions of Shabbat when they come in conflict with Pikulach Nefesh, the big overarching question that I'd say we're sort of thinking through is whether the laws of Shabbat are um, 
entirely uh, undone and made permissible in the context of uh, threat to human life and the other possibilities, maybe the laws of Shabbat are merely overwhelmed, overridden, pushed away by the threat to human life, but they remain there. You know, there's still values, there's still there, there's still a presence, it's just something else is more important, okay? And we're trying to figure out, are there any like real practical differences and what might, might they be based on these uh, these perspectives? One, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to summarize. No, in general, right, the practical difference would be if it's, uh, yes, if it's permitted, if it's just entirely not, not applicable, and we say don't think about it as you, as you go about whatever you need to do in order to save that person's life, whereas if it's just pushed aside, we're, we're going to be thinking, okay, how much do I want to push aside, right? What, what am I willing to transgress and what am I not? And, and, I think a little more. Is, was that not one of the main nafkaminas? Yeah, that yeah. We... That, 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 yes, I'm sorry. That, that would be. I think that, that nafkamina, though, is, is maybe uh, it's hard to figure. I, I've struggled to find an actual practical. Um, it's hard to identify mm-hmm. the practical situations where, where, where you would do something differently. Because, right. you know, like, one, you know, like okay, well, if it's, you know, do I, if I'm driving someone to the hospital, do I use my turn signals, right? Maybe I only right. drive because I have to get to the hospital, but anything extraneous I should avoid doing. But, like, of course they're going to turn your – because, like, that's just, just, it's just reckless to drive without using your turn right. signals. And, and the, even the mental energy to, like, oh, well, this is an empty street. I don't have to use my turn signal yeah. this time, so I'm going to not do it because it's shot. Like, you shouldn't be, like, wasting no. your brain cells <laughs> on that kind of thought when you're, like, rushing somebody to the hospital in an emergency situation, right? right? So, so it's hard to that, – Do that's anything to save a life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, one one like sort of like idea that was that we encountered as like one like sort of piece, one building block of this sort of structure that Rosh is sort of constructing in this in these uh, shirim is is uh, a position of the Minchat Chinuch, a 19th century uh, piece of scholarship who says that if you do half of a Malacha on one Shabbos and you finish it the second Shabbos, you're actually chayev. You're you're guilty. You're liable for breaking Shabbos, which I think is just the. I've been really enjoying that that position yeah. and sort of its implications and what that might mean, uh, right? <laughs> like if you write, you know, like the minimal what you're allowed to write write on Shabbat. So the minimal threshold for writing that would, you know, trigger a punishment or consequences would be writing two letters. So if you write one letter on one Shabbos and the following Shabbos you write a second letter. So Mechachinuch says that would be chayev because you you wrote you completed a Malacha on Shabbos even though you and you started at the if you if you write one letter before Shabbos and you write the second letter on Shabbos, that's your exempt. You didn't do the labor on Shabbos. But if you do it mm-hmm. one Shabbos and you wait a week and you do the second letter, you are you are chayev um, because somehow at least maybe or whatever that the, all the Shabbos in the world are kind of in, in time are, are are linked in some way. <laughs> it's all like one unit of, of sanctity and and right. they can combine in this in this way, which you know you carry the Shabbat of, you know, dimension right that we enter. Yeah. 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 So I, I think it's a really, I think it's really cool. Um, I'm trying to think of other malachot you could do half and half. Yeah, yeah, probably any of them you could do half of one Shabbos if you. You, know, <laughs> you carry you know. two amot in Rashut Harabim, and then you carry another two amot. Yeah, yeah. You, you pick something up <laughs> on one Shabbos, and you walk, and then you wait, you know, uh, a week, and then you put it down. I mean, that would be because you'd have to keep moving. It would be very hard, very hard to to, to pull that off. But you, uh, no, you uh, put the it down. one is pretty. You, you put know, it down, and you come back. <laughs> or you, yes. Yeah. You know. What are you doing in between that, right? Because once you stand still, you, that, that's a hanacha that's putting down, right? You've done um, akira hanacha, but you've done only two amot. Right, but then right, but then that's not. How do you then? How would you complete that malacha? I guess you pick it up again, maybe next Shabbos. And you, you do know. another akira and hanacha. <laughs> you do, right, right? No. Yeah. Right. Right. Know. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, but anyway, the, the 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 other the other really interesting nafkamina was to say, right, if you have a course of treatment 
right? That's going to take uh, seven. Was it the one with eight? Well, days? it was six days versus eight days, right? You have a six, six day days course versus of treatment. eight days. Yeah, that was sort of, that was sort of a trigger for this, uh, right? That was really interesting. Yeah, course of treatment. That's eight day course of treatment. Um, don't you don't wait till Shabbos to end to start the eight day course of treatment because oh, I could say, well, Shabbos is over in three hours. Uh, we'll start the chemo or we'll start the whatever it is, you know, tonight. And then I'll only have to, you know, in three hours from now or one hour from now when Shabbos is over. And then I'll only have to break one Shabbos in, in seven days. So it's an eight-day course of treatment. So the Lecha says, no, you don't wait at all. You just, you, you, you know, start right away. And the, uh, whereas if it's a six-day course of treatment, the, if, if there's going to be no adverse effect of delaying a couple hours, you say, no, no, wait till after Shabbos to start the six-day course of treatment. And then you'll avoid violating Shabbos at all. Um, and so somehow, if, we, if it's choices between violating one Shabbos versus two Shabbatot, there's no value in delay. Whereas if the choice is between no Shabbos being violated and one Shabbos being violated, it seems there is a value in being delayed. And, and that was yeah. maybe answered by this position in the Minchachinach of like all the Shabbatot in the world in history yeah. combining <laughs> into one unit of Shabbos, right? So yeah. once Shabbos really is being violated, it has to, because it's an eight-day course of treatment, then once, twice, three times it makes a difference. Whereas if it's... Um, where you can avoid it altogether, it seems that's something that we would go for and it's not going to have any adverse uh, effects. I don't know. So that's really, right. I, I, I find this stuff really interesting and really fun. Um, it, looks, yeah. it looks like we're going to have at least another week with uh, before we uh, start Shadow Shadows. So hopefully we can continue on. And even if you haven't you know, been, been learning with us, we'll try to make it accessible. You can just you know, jump right in. The, the poll that we would put to our audience, I guess, right, is what's the bigger benefit of having had to cancel you know, uh, Kiddush is it learning Harare Kedem or getting Chalent to go? <laughs> okay, audience poll. So write in, guys. Sure has been uh, strange <laughs> these last few weeks uh, with these. But uh, the Chalent to go is strong. Ch- Chalent to go is great. <laughs> and it turns out people will still socialize on the steps of the shul in 15-degree yeah. weather. In 15-degree weather. Yeah, 15 <laughs> is not so bad. 15-degree is not so bad. Oh, my uh, goodness. That's what I learned about kids this week at Mishnah Club, <laughs> is that they will eat pizza outside in 15-degree weather. So yeah, that, was, that was surprising I, to me. I, 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 I asked them. I gave them a choice of to-go, or they were like, nope. <laughs> that was surprising. Chicago kids. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Builds character. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so Dafyomi next week is start this week. This week Dafyomi is starting Masechet uh, Noed Katan, which is a Masechet I guess neither of us have ever learned through before, other than maybe yeah. passages and stuff. And um, so that's exciting. Uh, and uh, it's mostly about Avelut, right? It's about the laws of mourning. So uh, all the, you know Shiva Shloshim and you know it'll be twelve months and all the all the different uh, stages of mourning uh, are you know discussed. And, and uh, I think that's a value. I, I we. Um, yeah, maybe three years ago, there was a class that uh, that Rabbi Sarna taught, right? I believe so. Maybe I taught one of them. It was a series. I don't know. It was like things that you maybe she taught all of them. I don't remember, but it was uh, you know things that you never learned in school, but you should have. You know, and one of the weeks <laughs> was was Avelut, the laws of mourning, because it's a uh, in, in most cases people don't encounter the laws of mourning and the customs of mourning and studying them, and you know until it's too late, right? Until God forbid, there's somebody who's dead, and then they have to. Right away, figure out and make all these decisions, and Aminut and Shiva and Shloshim and all of these, all of these um, restrictions are upon them. And they don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the time or the focus to learn what to do. And uh, it's I, I think um, there's such so much psychological wisdom inherent in the laws and customs of mourning that 
you know, this bracketing for a minute, you know, we want to do mitzvot well, and we, you know, which I encourage, and I think it's, you know, there's like a, it's great, you know, like mitzvot and noble life, and, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do mitzvot carefully, et cetera, et cetera, just bracketing all of that. I just think there's a tremendous, tremendous psychological benefit from, uh, you know, careful and, and uh, thorough mourning practices, especially as, you know, like as halacha mandates of, Going from more extreme to less extreme, with sort of being gradually reintroduced, reintroduced into society and into social life, and all of those um, those stages. It's, it's, there's a lot of psychological wisdom there. That, like, it's it's your birthright as a Jew to avail yourself of this uh, of this guidance and inherit these morning practices. And I just, you know, it's it's uh, for a little bit of preparation and being familiar with them in advance makes it more likely and more easy for you to. Um, like do it when it's necessary, which isn't necessarily until you get advance notice when it's going to be necessary. So I, you know, I, I would recommend it. So anyway, so Dafyomi, this you know, the next couple of weeks really, uh, you know, even if you're not committing to learning Dafyomi every day for seven years, like you could learn Dafyomi every day for a couple of weeks, and and you'll get you know moed katan under your belt and and have exposure to like these like really important uh, mitzvot. Yeah, and how how quickly can you do a CM on moed katan? It's another one of those. I think it's like, like 15, can... it's like, yeah, it's maybe like 15 daf or something. Yeah, like that. it's a pretty so that's also a, a good plug. Yeah, I do feel sorry. Somebody who, like, people who started Dafyomi in the last uh, couple months, they're like, oh, it's like, this is so great. All these, like, really famous stories, and uh, you finish them a second <laughs> every couple of weeks, and then we'll see them, party. Every, it's like, this is great. We're just checking off boxes, and I'm, you know, finishing the sechta left and right. This is great. And then, you know, over the horizon, there is Masechet Yevama, it is looming. <laughs> <laughs> It's this, like, uh, you know, whatever, you know, menacing. Uh, no, it's, it's, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll definitely be great. It's not menacing. It just involves a lot of charts. A lot of charts. Yavamut is about, like, very <laughs> intricate family relationships. Um, and so you need to, like, chart it. If you have a chart, you can figure it out. You just need, yeah. need, need to get one of those uh, need charts. That's all. Family trees. That's it. <laughs> 